You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make them known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sharon. Amen. I've been teaching the kids most of the week, and had the great delight of boys that weren't paying attention just saying their name out loud and embarrassing them, so hopefully everyone's able to pay attention this morning, and hopefully... I don't kick into old habits from camp. Um, let me pray, and let's, let's spend some time reflecting on God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you've given to us your word, and now we come to you as a people who need desperately to hear from you. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. O oh Lord, you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if anyone else has read uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. It's one of, the, one of my favorite biographies to read, but one of the uh, features in the life of Steve Jobs that I found quite interesting was uh, people who worked around him described him as having a reality distortion field around him. And there were times where this is beneficial, and there's people who, who sort of love and admire Steve Jobs who want to make this something that's, that's good, that you know, someone would say, there's no way we can get that done in a month, and he would say, okay, I want it done in a week. And he could just distort reality, and somehow he could bend reality to his will. Uh, but as you read further in the bio- biography, you find out that this reality distortion field actually caused a lot of pain in a lot of the people that he worked with's life. In fact, uh, people would come into his office and present to him an idea, 
and he would be in a foul mood, and he would say, get out of here, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. I, what are you wasting my time? And then two weeks later, he would stand up at something like a staff meeting, and he would present that same idea, and he would act like it was his own. And he would be confronted by staff members saying, hey, I, I went to your office, I shared that with you, and he said, what are you talking about? This is my idea, I put it in your head. He had this thing called this reality distortion field around him that Walter Isaacson documents, and in many ways it made him who he was, but when it was mixed sort of with his narcissism and his other, his other problems, uh, it also made him uh, the man he was that caused a lot of pain and a lot of harm to those people around him. Now, why do I share this? Uh, in this passage, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, and what he is doing, these Pharisees are kind of the religious leaders of the day, and he's showing them that, that the way in which they have approached their relationship with God and even this law that God had left with his people is sort of, they, they have this reality distortion field around them. And I think if you look closely, it's easy to throw the Pharisees under the bus, but I think if you look closely at what's going on, you're going to find that this reality distortion field, it's something that kind of we all have as it relates to entering into a relationship with our creator. There's something about us that causes us to bend sort of reality sort of in a way that, that sort of uh, reflects and takes away from the original intention. And in this passage, we're going to see that this reality distortion field is, is so incredibly destructive that by f- verse 14, the Pharisees, they, they're done with Jesus. They want him killed. You know, it's one thing to say this guy is cuckoo, he's crazy, ignore him. It's quite another by the time we get to verse 14 where they want to destroy Jesus. And I think what this passage is going to do is give us a bit of a warning about this reality distortion field that we all carry into our relationship with God, and it's going to give us something of a solution. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at the distortion that we all bring into our relationship with God that leads towards death, and then I want to look at the solution that Jesus offers, which leads towards life, okay? So first, let's talk about the distortion that we're all prone to in our relationship with God that leads towards death. Now, where do we see this distortion? Well, we obviously see it on display in this controversy with the Pharisees. Um, Some of you I know are still, you know, new or exploring Christianity every week. We're glad you're here. Maybe I'll give you a little bit, help you set the scene to understand what's going on in this passage. So, the passage starts with Jesus' disciples. The the version that we had read here, I think, actually says that they were, were either plucking grain or plucking corn. It's probably better to say that they're plucking grain. And uh, this starts a confrontation. Now, the reason this starts a confrontation is not because they're stealing from farmers. You know, today, if you pulled over on the side of the road and grabbed some grain or some corn from the farm field, that would probably be a crime and you'd find yourself in trouble. And probably Monsanto would be mad at you for some proprietary seed that you just stole off farmland. I don't know. It's more complicated today. But God had created a law in uh, the, the world at the time to inc- be uh, merciful to people who were without resources, especially people who were traveling, who found themselves in difficult situations. And so he told his people, their grapes and their grain, uh, they were not to plow up to the ends of the corners of their field. They were to sort of round it off. And so long as no one came with a basket or a sickle, so long as uh, sort of no one, no one came and tried to make money off of this, this was charity. This was uh, food. You know, they don't have the bodegas in the corner. They don't have the gas stations. This is a way travelers could sustain themselves. Jesus' disciples are hungry, and the problem isn't that they're taking this food. The problem is the day that they're doing it on. They're doing it on Saturday, on the Sabbath. This is is what starts this controversy. It's the seventh day, and they're, they're taking this grain, and this sets off the Pharisees. Now, why is this troubling? Well, since creation, according to the Bible... God sort of makes the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he himself rests and takes in all that's been done and says, it is good. 
And the seventh day is a delight, a day of rest. And God's people, you may remember, uh, through the course of their history, end up in Egypt, enslaved. And for 400 years, they're slaves in Egypt, and they never get a day of rest. I mean, think about this. You know, we complain we have to work Saturdays. We've become quite weak as a people. These are people 400 years. Think of the generational trauma. You know, no rest. They were, were given a calendar by a people over them, and they never, ever got rest. And so when God broke into human history and rescued them from Egypt, from the place of slavery, and delivered them to his land that he had set apart for them so they could finally be his people, his nation, he said, you must, you must observe this day of rest. And those who are your servants also must observe this day of rest. You must not let anybody work on this day. And so in some real senses, God's people worked hard to preserve this day of rest. They did not want, they did not want anyone to forget about where they had come from and what God had done. And to sort of desecrate the day of rest in some senses would be to spit on, you know, your parents' grave. It would be to make your employees work on Thanksgiving. You know, it, this, this, was, this was absolutely uh, sacred and protected. It was so central to the Jewish identity. Over time, though, the Jewish people had developed various sort of laws to make sure that the laws weren't broken. So, you know, God's law is, gives principles in order to take things from kind of black and white to color. There is a Jewish commentary called the Mishnah, which had given 39 sort of laws around the laws to say, here's what's allowed to do on Sabbath, and here's what's not allowed. Here's how far you can walk before it becomes work, and here's how far you can walk just to enjoy a, a Sabbath walk. All these sort of rules, which maybe were started with good intentions, and maybe were started to protect Sabbath, had really spiraled into sort of a law of their own. And this became central to the identity of God's people as they're kind of being occupied by the Romans. Now, the Pharisees, um, you know, these were the people who, in the midst of this Roman occupation, thought the way in which they could arouse God's attention and the way in which they could be delivered from this oppressive regime would be diligent law-keeping. So to say that these, the Pharisees were the teacher's pets is no understatement. You know, these were the keeners. They were obsessed with the law, and they were obsessed with the lit written tradition around the law. And this is why they're coming to heads with Jesus here. They were meticulous about obeying the law, and they thought, this is how we'll get God to see us again and rescue us from the situation we're in. And now Jesus comes along. They're trying to evaluate who he is. And here he is harvesting grain with his disciples. They're plucking grain. And you can't eat grain as is. You have to sift it. You have to separate it, pull it apart. And they're eating the snack on the Sabbath. This is not lawful in their minds. Now, there was nothing in, in God's Word, the Old Testament, to say this is unlawful, but their tradition had developed that told them that this is unlawful, and Jesus is not bending to their tradition. This is why in verse 2 they say, you know, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, technically, again, they didn't uh, violate God's actual law, but this written tradition that had come around it, and Jesus won't have it. And so he actually decides that he's going to meet them uh, on their own terms. He's going to, to engage with them based on the written word of God that they have. And he cites a couple of stories, two case studies. The first one comes from 1 Samuel 21. King David's on the run. God has said King David is the rightful king of Israel. And King Saul is not yet aware of it. And he, and he is sending men to try to kill David. And as David's men are on the run, they find themselves trapped and they're hungry and they're near the tabernacle. And it's the Sabbath. It's the seventh day. There's fresh bread that has been baked in the tabernacle, which was to remind God's people that he wanted to dwell with them, and he wanted to eat with them and be their God. 
And because David's men are trapped and they're hungry, David bursts into the tabernacle and he sees fit, though this bread was sacred, though it was for religious purposes, he sees fit to take these loaves of bread and to feed his men on the Sabbath. And his actions are not deemed as wicked. Case study one, Jesus meets the Pharisees where they're at and says, how can David get away with it? What are you saying about me? Then he takes another case study and he says this. He says, you religious people, you, you just love the temple. You're always at the temple on Sabbath. That's where you ought to be. You know, you're, you're in love with what goes on at the temple on Sabbath. And yet, and yet, every time I go to the temple, the priests are dripping sweat because they have to slaughter animals and put them up on the altar throw the blood on the altar. They're exhausting and they're working, and yet their work is permissible. Jesus said there is, Jesus confronts them and challenges them, and he says this, you have a distortion in your heart. Listen closely. This is the distortion field I'm saying they have in their heart that I think we all have a bit of. He's saying there's something in your heart that distorts who God is. What does he say? He cites the prophet Hosea 6.6. He says, you don't understand what the Bible means when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You've distorted. You don't understand what God wants, and you've distorted what God wants, and so now you don't even understand who God is. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. That is who he is. You know, it's like a a wife buying a cat for her husband, saying, I'm so excited to give you a cat, but the husband's allergic to cats. You know, what what are you thinking? Do Do you know me? Why, why would you do this? Do you, do you know the things I value? Or a husband who comes home with takeout sushi, and the wife says, I don't, I don't like fish. Do you, do you know me? Why would you do this? You know? Or maybe the husband who plans a vacation in one of the busiest cities of the world to a wife who loves to be on the beach. Okay, now I'm getting too much into my own marriage. <laughs> and the wife says, do you know me? Do you know what I count as vacation? Do you know what I prioritize? And after a while, the spouse starts to wonder, is this about you or, or is this about me? Like, is this a gift for me or is this a gift for you? Are you doing this for yourself? Listen, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. Jesus is confronting them for the distortion that they are bringing into their relationship with God. You know, they're, they're showing up with the cat and God's saying, that's not what I want. Do you not know me? I've always desired mercy more than sexual. I, I've always been that way. Do you even understand who I am? The Sabbath was not something that was earned. It was a gift given at creation. It was a gift to commemorate when you were starving slaves of your rescue. Mercy, not sacrifice. Do you even know me? I love mercy. All over the pages of the Bible, I am merciful. The Sabbath is all about mercy. Mercy, giving things you don't deserve. The rest, it's not like you earned this stuff. This this is a gift. And yet here you are, distorting my laws to be oppressive to people who are hungry. Do you, do you even know me? And you, you portray that this is pious, that you're doing this because you love me, but I wonder, is this more about you than it's about me? It doesn't seem like you know me. This is what Jesus is trying to say. He is driving home the point. And then, lest we, lest we could forget it, you know, it's, a setup happens as Jesus walks into the synagogue, a man with a withered hand. Jesus, they ask Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? What jerks? Here's a man who's got a withered hand in a society where manual labor is virtually what everybody's doing. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus cites a passage. He says, well, we all know that if, if you see sheep stuck in a pit 
even if it's the Sabbath, it's still lawful to rescue life. Even animal life is greater uh, than the sort of obsession with not working that you have. The Pharisees do their calculation, and they say, okay, well, this man with the withered hand, it's not like he's in a pit. And it's not like this withered hand just came on the Sabbath. You know, he had a withered hand yesterday. We'll have a withered hand tomorrow. Why wouldn't you just heal him tomorrow? Honor the Sabbath. We don't work. We don't practice medicine on the Sabbath. We don't do healing. Jesus looks them in the eyes and says, you don't know me, and you don't know my Father. And what does he do? He heals. He heals this man, and this sets them over the edge. Jesus' point is that the Sabbath is a gift, and they had taken that gift and made it a curse to others. Maybe not to themselves, but a curse to others. And this is a great warning for us, a great warning for us. There's something deep in our hearts that will take the good things that God has given to us And our hearts will take those good things, appreciate them for a season, and unbeknownst to us, ever so slightly, will begin to drift away, and those good gifts that God has given to us become means by which we lay burdens on others. We curse others because we take the good things God gives us, has given to us, and we respond with obedience towards him. And before long, the obedience actually isn't about God. We, we, we go to God and say, we're being so obedient. Look, look how diligent we are to the Sabbath. And the Lord says, do you even know me? I value mercy, not sacrifice. Is this even about me? Or were you, you know, were you hungry for sushi? And that's why you brought me this wonderful takeout. This obedience is all about you. It's not about me. This obedience is all about you. It's all about you feeling as though you are in the right with God, that you're better than the person next to you. It's all about you feeling like, oh, if there are good guys in this world, and Lord, we know we're all bad, we're all sinful. But some of us seem to have an extra dose of sinfulness, and Lord, I, not me. Not me, Lord, look at my obedience. You see, this passage is telling us that there's a distortion that exists deep into our hearts where the very thing God commands of us, obedience, good things, let's say giving to the poor, things we ought to find ourselves doing, we can ever so slightly take these good things, polish them up, and yet they will still be for us grotesque sins before God. There's a way in which we could give money to the poor and do it in such a way that we feel much better about ourselves than others, and we feel no guilt about the evils we do to make our money. I think we all know this type of obedience. Or the obedience of, well, you know, I'm not a perfect Christian, but I'll tell you what I'm not. I'm not judgmental like those crazy fundamentalists, you know, Whoever God is and whatever it is, I know that he's not as judgmental as those people are, and therefore I must be part of the good people because I don't judge, (laughs) ironically. I hope I'm making my point. My point is this. You know, in, in the same way, in the same way you walk into the car sales floor and the car salesman is, you know what, let me buy you a cup of coffee. Is that an act of sincere love because the salesman wants you to enjoy coffee with them and delight over a cup of coffee? No, he's trying to make a sale. So also there's something in our hearts as it relates to our relationship with God where even the good things we do start to become that cup of coffee from the salesman. Do you know what I'm talking about? Come on. You know. The, uh, the wife who has everything ready for her husband, dinner ready, house spectacular, clean, everything's done, say, let's just, I just want you to relax tonight. All to find out she overspent on the credit card, you know? Do it. The good things. There's something inside of us. The good things that we do for God. This is how sinful we are. And we're seeing it in the Pharisees here. That the very good things God requires of us 
there's a way that we can distort these things where we think we can hold God hostage. Where we can say, you are now in my debt. You owe me one because I am doing the right things. I am doing the good things. I am part of the good guy. There's a way in which we can say in an insecure and anxious world, I can have security. You know why? Because I read my Bible daily, darn it. And I don't swear. I use words like darn it, you know. Like I'm part of the good team. The Lord looks at laws like this and says, do you even know me? Do you even know me? I mean, listen, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're not doing evil, but do you even know me? And is this obedience about me? Or is this all about you? Because I kind of feel like you're coming to me like a car salesman offering me a cup of coffee with your obedience. This is just how sinful we are. I hope I'm making some sense. If the coin will drop in this, you will understand what Jesus has done for you in ways you never have before. I assure you of this. There's a way in which we distort all the things God asks of us, whether it be attending church on Sunday, singing songs, giving to the poor, loving our neighbor, avoiding all the Ten Commandments. There's a way we can do all those things and in a sense technically be right and God look down at us and say, do you even know me? Do you even know me? This is what this passage is warning us about. There's a distortion that brings death. There's a reason why the Pharisees can't just ignore Jesus. They have to kill him because he is going after who they are as people. He's going right after their identity. If they are anything, they are the obedient people. And Jesus is saying, do you even know me? You're great at getting cups of coffee and holding the door. But it seems all for ulterior motives. Do you even know me? You see, they have a wrong view of themselves. They don't understand just how sinful the human heart is, how deceived we really are, how much we have a propensity to rebel against God deep down inside, and they have a wrong view of God. They think he's just a, you know, a meticulous accountant making sure that all the ledgers line up. This is the distortion that we all bring. God values mercy more than sacrifice. Now, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what law that you're currently living by that you say, so long as I do this, I know God's going to get my back because I'm part of the good people. I don't know exactly what it is, but I know you have it because this distortion reality exists in my heart and it exists in the heart of every person I've ever sat across from as a pastor. There's something with which you find yourself doing that you root your identity in and it's the wrong thing. It's going to let you down. It's going to lead towards death if it's anything other than Jesus Christ. And this is what the Pharisees are showing. This is the distortion that leads to death. There's a type of way in which we can distort the good things God gives us as means by which we keep God at bay. We keep him distant. We, we allow our good behavior to give us bartering chips in this relationship, and God won't have any of it. And he looks down and he says, do you even know me? And is this even about me, or is this about you? This passage would, be, would be, just be depressing if Jesus isn't offering some sort of solution, and a, a deep solution that brings to life. Where do we see this? Well, a lot could be said, especially the way Jesus digs up Scripture and, and encourages us that part of the solution with hearts this sinful is to constantly go back to Scripture and make sure we see God clearly and make sure we understand God clearly. We could spend a lot of time thinking about that. But I want to focus especially what he says on verse 8 where he says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, these Pharisees have a wrong view of themselves. They don't understand how sinful they are. They think sin is something they can kind of manage, and it is not something like that. It's like a virus that's out of control. There's no, there's no isolating and they don't understand God. They don't understand the way in which 
He's merciful and gives gifts, and even his very law is not meant to be some sort of measure of curse towards his people, but it's an act of love. They don't understand that he values mercy more than sacrifice. They've twisted obedience sort of into polished and gold-laden spite towards God. And this has led towards death, but Jesus says, listen, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You want life? I'm greater than David. David was permitted to allow his disciples to eat. A greater David has come. The temple, they're allowed to work because that work is good and important to the life of the people of God. Something greater than the temple is in your midst. I'm the Lord. I am the master of the Sabbath. I'm the one who's in charge of Sabbath. This is what he's saying in this particular passage. Now, what does this mean? And how, in, in any way, is this a solution? Well, we must reflect just a little bit on the Sabbath. And I'm sorry, this mic keeps falling down. I feel like I'm uh, adjusting it like a comedian, you know, with an anxious tick. Uh, what does this mean? Let's talk just a bit about Sabbath, okay? So the Sabbath was for God's people to be a day of rest, and it still is in in a sense. It's rooted into the way God created the world. It goes all the way back to creation. After God rescues his people, he reestablishes it and reemphasizes it. It was never to be a day of a crushing demand to do nothing. You know, ours is a world, I don't think I have to explain this to you, where if I ask you, um, you know, there's people here, actually, I just, just met, people visiting. It, it takes like three questions before I can't help it, but, I, you know, what do you do for a living? It just comes out. The Sabbath was given to God's people because God knew this was the type of world we're in, where, where work can crush us and overwhelm us, or it can become all of our identity and all, all of who we think we are. And the Lord has given us one day in six, and he's told his people, don't work. Don't work. In fact, search every other religion you can find. Who else has a whole schedule where one day is set apart for rest? Don't let the crushing demands of work define you. Don't let the crushing needs of survival dictate how you live your life. One day, rest. And on that day, you're going to rest. You're going to have to believe that God is in charge. You're going to have to believe that the world is still going to keep spinning. You're going to have to believe your bank account is going to be there on Monday. You're going to have to believe this. This is what the Sabbath was always meant to be. God saying to his people, you need a day to remember that I make things and I make them good and I fully accept you, apart from your work, by grace. And so this is to be for you to be a day of rest. Now when Jesus comes along and he says, the Son of Man, which is this title he's using to refer to himself, says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, that he's the master of the Sabbath, he's saying, I am the reason why ultimately you can stop I am the reason why you can stop and do nothing, because I'm the master of rest. I'm the one who gives true and deep and and, and fitting rest. I I am the person who so thoroughly will complete the project and turn it in on Saturday night so that Sunday you can rest assured. You can enjoy your Sunday. You you can enjoy the Sabbath, in this case Saturday. You can enjoy it. Because I am the Lord, the master, the one who gives rest. I am the one who comes. And I, he, the end of the passage is unbelievable. We could spend also a lot of time talking about the way that Jesus draws upon the picture of Psalm 42, of the servant of the Lord that is going to come. Jesus says, I have come to be the Lord and master of, of, of the Sabbath, of the day of rest. And I'm not going to do it by being a sort of conquering soldier. I'm going to actually do it by not being obnoxious, by not fighting, by not quarreling. And I, I am going to be so gentle that, you know, a fragile and bruised reed, I won't even break it. I'll be so gentle. You know, the flickering of a candle. If we lit a candle down here, it would just be constantly going out because of the air movement in the room. I, I, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I am so gentle that not even the wick of the candle would go out. 
as I do my work. I have come to give you true and final and great rest in me, and I'm going to do it not by demanding you do not pluck grain on Sunday. I'm going to do it in a completely different way, and it will be a hope for all of the people of the world, all the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. Justice will find its victory in the way the servant will win. Now, what am I trying to say? I think I'm trying to keep you hanging in there. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this, that if our greatest striving and obedience, because of our sinful hearts, can often turn into sort of polished disobedience, gold-plated disobedience, you know, what I'm trying to say is the way forward is to know and experience and live with the giver of true rest, the Lord of Sabbath. This has got to be the way forward. If, if one trajectory leads us down a path towards death, as we distort the good things we need to do, then the way towards life is going to be found in resting and trusting that Jesus is the master of rest. He's the master of Sabbath, the one who says, satisfied, good enough, relax. This is going to be the means by which we understand and find the solution to this distortion that comes around us. We're going to reset. It's like restarting a computer once a week. And we're going to do that as such, knowing that rest came to us because the work of someone else. A few years back, Harvard Business Review ran an, an, an amazing study. I think it was actually out of Germany, University of Hamburg. Yeah, I wrote it down. And in this study, there was a direct correlation. Listen, there was a direct correlation between the higher your level of education and the more Sunday neurosis you felt, okay? So the more educated you are, the more you, you find Sunday to be miserable. This, is, this was documented, Harvard Business Review ran it, it's from a University of Hamburg study. Why is that? And why is this good news to a church like ours? Because the more educated you are, the more your identity is rooted in what you find yourself doing. The less educated you are, the more you understand that life, whether we like it or not, is, is a lot more about survival. You know, some of us get to survive in more prestigious ways than others, but it's not, not categorically different. And what is Jesus saying? What is he wrestling with? What does he want us to understand? A people who are pretty highly educated, a people who probably can't rest, who find meaning and identity in their work, who look to their work for salvation. What is he saying? He's saying if you want to find a path towards life, not death, life, rather than getting on the treadmill of things that you must do, it's going to start with knowing him as the Lord of the rest the master of Sabbath. Your relationship with him will be dependent on understanding him as the Lord of Sabbath. This isn't to say that you give up on obedience or that you practice disobedience, but it's that you declare bankruptcy in a very real way as we've been saying this whole service. And you, you find yourself in him saying, the path that I've gone on to hold you hostage, all those coffees I brought to you as a car salesman, hoping you will buy my car, I'm done with that route. I don't trust myself anymore, Lord. I need your help. And it's only then, when, when, you, when you really see yourself that sinful, that you really see how great God's love is. You'll see exactly how merciful he is. And something will change. Something will change, and you'll know it changed, because you'll find yourself resting. While coworkers are striving anxiously, nonstop, you'll find your, 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 your security so deeply rooted in Christ that nothing can unsettle it. You know, the church has historically moved the Sabbath from the, the seventh day to the first day of the week, commemorating the resurrection of Jesus. But you'll find yourself setting apart Sunday and saying, it's a delight to come and be with the Lord, to be reminded that all I need for salvation, He has provided. And then to be sent out Monday through Saturday, working out of that identity, not trying to earn rest, but realizing we receive rest by grace, and now as a response of gratitude towards that rest. 
we go and work and love and serve this world. It'll look like spending Sunday realizing that Sunday is not the day, which I know it is for most of you. It's the day where you're ever busy calendar, where you, you deal with the tasks you haven't done yet. <laughs> I know some of you have got laundry to do when you get home, and you've got lawn work to do when you get home. If you understand Jesus as the true Lord of rest, and you, if you understand the propensity of your sinful heart, and that Jesus is the true Lord of Sabbath, you're going to find yourself saying, that stuff can wait. I'm going to take a day to delight in the Lord, to delight in what he says about me. That laundry doesn't have to be folded, and it can have wrinkles. Maybe wait till the sun goes down to do it. I'm not telling you to take up legalistic tendencies, but I am telling you this. What this passage is saying is if our sinful hearts are that deviated, that distorted, the only way forward is going to be something so radical, so subversive, so countercultural that it's going, to, it's going to feel painful at first. But it's going to look like delighting in this rest. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this, and maybe I'll just be blunt. I'm very concerned. You know, I, we sat with this camp with 71 kids. I don't exactly know what it's going to look like as we pass on our faith to our kids. It seems like Christianity is becoming less and less popular, especially in the sort of higher echelons of our society. And I don't know what the future of Christianity looks like, but I will tell you this. More than ever, I'm convinced that one habit everyone in this room could make, which will allow the faith to solidify and push forward, is really, truly knowing Jesus as your rest. The end of striving. The end of earning. The end of trying to seek likes, finding him as your rest and finding your identity in him, I think this is going to be critical to what it looks for, the way in which our faith is going to push forward into this unpredictable world in our city that is to come, turning the Sabbath into a delight. Let me conclude this way. I was around kids all week. I learned the power of telling stories. Let me end with a little fairy tale. There once was a prince, and um, as part of his princely duties, he put on his regalia and he went to go visit an orphanage. And in the orphanage, he found a woman who had run the orphanage who herself was an orphan and never actually was adopted. Her whole life, she spent in the orphanage. No one wanted her. And the prince, from the moment he set eyes on this director of the orphanage, he was smitten. He was in love. He knew this must be the woman he would marry. And he found excuses to continue to visit this orphanage, and he found himself only confirmed in his love for this woman. And before long, that's indeed what he did. This woman who had had no family before, who had never really felt truly loved. Now she was loved by the prince, who eventually became the king. He had taken her for his bride. They were deeply in love, and their world was their kingdom. Their future was about growing and making this beautiful and wonderful kingdom. Now, since the queen was, grew up in an orphanage, she struggled to hear the king say that he loved her, greatly struggled. And the king and the queen, having all the resources of the kingdom that they had, called in psychologists and counselors to help them. How in the world can we make sure that she understands that she's loved? And a decision was made amongst the greatest therapists of the day. Rather than him just telling this over and over, as important as this was, that though the king had a very, very busy schedule, and so did the queen, all kinds of royal duties, one day was going to be set aside. They were going to call it the savor day. The day in which the king's full focus and full delight was fixed on his queen, where he would remind her of his great love for her. And on that day, they would go on long walks hand in hand, delighting in the great kingdom that they oversaw. They would speak to each other tenderly and vulnerable, vulnerably. They would eat the best meals of the week, always on this one day, this savor day. And they would do things near and dear to both of their hearts, like visit the orphanage that the queen once called home.
the thing that brought them together. This is what Savor Day was all about, the way in which they would stoke the fire of their love and their closeness one to, one to another. But one day, over time, the bride's deep amazement gave way to doubts. And she couldn't believe the king's love was real and in a world where she had been played and hurt so many times, where she had learned to keep up guards so she doesn't hurt herself again, she started to question the love of the king. She thought it was one big setup. She feared she would soon be cast out. She never said this to the king, but over time they would go on walks. It's still old hands, but there was a coldness. There was a suspicion that she started to, to gather of his motives. And though they ate some of the most delightful meals, the conversations grew from shallow to silent. And eventually the queen realized not only that she must run away, but really, she needs to do away with this evil king. She must throw away the crown, hide, and if possible, end the life of the king. It was either that, or she'd have to learn to believe she's loved. Listen, this story is obviously a fairy tale, but it's a fairy tale to what's going on today. It's what's going on in the life of the Pharisees, and it's what going, is going on in your heart today. The Lord has given us one day to delight, a day to remember all that he's done for us, a day to rest in his love, a day to participate in the very things that brought us together. Mercy, not sacrifice. But like the queen, a choice stands before you. You can either join the Pharisees in verse 14 and conspire to get him out of your life and do away with him and call him mad and crazy. Or, or, you can come to him, all you who labor and are heavy burden, or heavy laden. You can take his yoke upon you and you can know his rest. And though your doubts tell you to question his love, you can doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. You are loved by this great king. This is a day of delight. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He gave his life so that the striving would end, so that everything would be complete, and that you would know securely you are his. Don't neglect it. Make today a day of rest as a way of saying you believe what Jesus says about you, as a way of questioning where your heart pulls you. Make today a day of rest. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we know your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And yet our hearts are just pulled towards toxic things that pull us away from your love. Help us to rest more deeply in Christ, even this day, we ask in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.